Excellent choir. Thank you. This past week I was uh, speaking at a retreat, a men's retreat of about 200 men in uh, Tennessee. And uh, on our way there, we did some uh, different things. But uh, I, as I was driving down the road and at uh, probably a little faster than the local sheriff would have wanted me to, um, I, I noticed this sign on the side of the road, and it immediately caught my attention. The reason it caught my attention is because this sign looked like it had once been an old bakery sign, but painted over. A lighted sign with a uh, metal frame around it that was rusting and badly in need of paint, with weeds and trash all around it, a few 18-wheelers parked in front of it, and the building behind it in a great need of a paint job. Looked like one of the trucks had backed into the building at some point. And the sign said, The Church of Acts. And I looked at that and I said, Dear God, I hope that's not the Church of Acts. I think the Church of Acts is an exciting study. It is a study that draws our hearts and minds to what could be and what should be. What grieves me about the study of the book of Acts is that what should have signaled the great and glorious beginning of the church, what should have been the happy birthday of the church where we plant our flag and rejoice in what God did in establishing the church, Many of the aspects of that early church have become sources of divisions and schisms and schemes and discussions and all kinds of stuff that should have never happened. Not if we were in the Spirit. I think what has happened, especially in Acts chapter 2, has probably caused more division and confusion than even those who want to discuss the timing of the second coming of Jesus. And I do not find anywhere where the Holy Spirit brings division or confusion. And so I want to give some introductory comments, and there are many of them, so you may want to write small because I have a number of things to say tonight, and we need to get to it. Number one, the coming of the Spirit was God's answer to dead religion. The coming of the Spirit was God's answer to dead religion. He came to infuse the church with life. The Jews had bought into a ritualistic faith of rote and sacrifices, but they had lost the joy and the meaning behind all of that. One of the reasons why I think there are excesses and extremes today is because if you are in a church where the wood is so dry that any spark will light it, any spark will light it, even if it's a spark from the wrong match. And so Jesus came not to give life and answer to a dead religion, but not just to start anything, but something in particular. Secondly, the coming of the Spirit introduced a new dynamic and a new dimension. 
It introduced a new dynamic and a new dimension. The third one, and this is a long one, so I'll repeat it a couple of times. The coming of the Spirit demands an exegesis, E-X-E-G-I-S-I-S, E-S-I-S, an exegesis and interpretation of events. The coming of the Spirit demands an exegesis and interpretation of events from the didactic, D-I-D-A-C-T-I-C. From the didactic, I know that's hard, rather than the descriptive point of view. The coming of the Spirit demands an exegesis and interpretation of events from the didactic, D-I-D-A-C-T-I-C, rather than the descriptive point of view. Now let me give you the difference. The didactic is what Jesus taught and what the early church was taught through Peter and Paul and John and James. These are the teachings of God on which we build doctrine. That's the didactic. The didactic is the teaching that we are given, the instruction that we are given in God's Word about any doctrine or any issue. The descriptive is the narrative that reports the events. And you cannot interpret the coming of the Spirit just by the descriptive. You have to go back, first of all, to the didactic. What did Jesus say the Spirit would do? Jesus said the Spirit would come as a comforter. Jesus said the Spirit would come to convict of sin. Jesus said the Spirit would come to guide you into all truth. And so anytime you read the descriptive, you have to interpret the descriptive in light of the didactic and not the other way around. Now, I, I, don't, I don't pay much attention to the news. I don't have anything against the news, but... In, in my opinion, and that's all it's worth, many in the media today, especially the national media, manufacture the news. They don't report the news. They create the news. They tell you what is news rather than letting you decide what is news. And there is a sense in which there have always been elements, even in the first century church with the Judaizers who manufactured a gospel. And Paul spent much of his ministry dealing with the Judaizers who said, you first got to be a Jew before you can become a Christian. And he was refuting that because they had manufactured that. It is not uncommon to see that there are people who manufacture a theology instead of teaching you theology. It is easy then to see events and not see the deeper truths and to describe something only by the narrative and not by the truth behind the narrative. Here's my commitment when you deal with touchy situations and I pray and I hope that tonight I can do that. First of all, I'm committed to submitting everything I believe or think to the Word of God. 
not to the church that I was raised in, not to my experiences, not to my thoughts, or not to the opinions of my friends, but to go to the original text and try to study the Word of God. I called a person this afternoon just to run by my exegesis again who teaches Greek in a seminary just to say I want to make sure that I'm on the right path in what I'm saying and that I have an accurate interpretation of the Word of God and that I don't assume something and take something out of context but I do it in the context of the passage and in the context of all of Scripture. Secondly, I, I'm not interested in, in preferences. I'm interested in truth. That's all that matters to me. Uh, preferences come and go, opinions come and go, but truth stays the same forever and ever. Now let me give you a statement, a hermeneutical statement, an interpretive statement that you need to understand. It will, it will change the way you read the Bible. And this is a basic rule of interpretation. It is simply this. You do not read the Old Testament as if it is the New Testament. You do not read the Old Testament as if it is the New Testament. The second is, you do not read the New Testament as if it is today. You have to read those books in their historical context. And you have to come to a conclusion based on the study of words. Now, here's one thing. Uh, I, for instance, there's one particular author that I have in mind, and he's A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink takes typology to the extreme. Everything to A.W. Pink is a type. I mean, the word the is a type of something. I mean, he's just massively committed to that. There's some good things that he says, but you can take typology to an extreme just like you can take allegory to an extreme or an illustration to an extreme. And so you have to interpret the Old Testament as it was written and to who it was written to, and the New Testament as it was written and who it was written to, and then see what application it has to us today. For instance, there are people who defend vehemently and hold denominations built on baptism for salvation. That is from taking isolated text and not looking at the whole context of what Scripture says, but just looking at a few verses of Scripture. Scripture always balances Scripture. And you don't need to get off on something because you say, oh, the Bible teaches baptism. Well, you could look at the Bible if you only read parts of it and say the Bible teaches you have to do good works to be saved. Then you would ignore everything that it says about grace and goodness. Our Catholic friends hold a very high view of Mary. I was listening to Warren Wiersbe this week while I was driving, and Warren said, have you noticed the last thing that Mary said? The last recorded words of Mary, the mother of our Lord. The Bible, by the way, never calls her the Virgin Mary. It says there was a virgin that conceived a child, but after that point, it never calls her the Virgin Mary. It helped for a lot of people to read their Bibles. 
the last thing that Mary is ever recorded as saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down as a reminder, was at the wedding feast at Canaan in Jesus' first miracle, and she said, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. She pointed them to Jesus, not to herself. And so we can't go on preferences. What God does in the diversity of the body of Christ is He has unity, not uniformity, with diversity, and that diversity is only healthy if that diversity leads to maturity. If it leads to division, it's not healthy. If it leads to maturity, it is healthy. I was watching this afternoon on television for a few minutes, and they were talking about the explosion of the space shuttle Columbia. And they asked one of the experts at NASA to speculate on his theory of why. And this expert said, we don't begin an investigation with a theory. We begin with a blank piece of paper and get all the facts together. Then, from the facts, we develop a theory. Then they interviewed Sally Ride, who was the first female astronaut, and she was a part of the Challenger investigation. I thought her comments were interesting. She said, some of the things we thought were reasons for the explosion of the Challenger on the first and second day turned out to be wrong. Now listen to this next statement she makes. Even the video gave us false choices. They had to dig deep. And even what you see or what you think you see can be wrong. That's why the basis is the Word of God. The next commitment I would make to you is I want to always handle disagreements with tact and grace. Now, I've got to admit, sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes I want to strap on a machine gun and just go to war, but, you know... I, as I get older, and hopefully I'll, before I die, I'll get here, that I want to handle disagreements with tact and grace. There's an old saying that goes something like this. Write your criticisms in dust and your compliments in marble. And so whatever we do, I want us to do it with tact and with grace. The, second th the fourth thing is the only true authority is Jesus. Now, disagreements are inevitable. And the reason there are disagreements is because there's an issue and there are two viewpoints. That's true in politics, it's true in religion, it's true in life. And if you tell me you and your wife have never had a disagreement, it's because one of you is not thinking. Well, you've really died to yourself. Disagreements are inevitable. But we have to take those disagreements under the spotlight of the Word of God and see what the Word of God says. Because it really doesn't matter what I think or you think or anybody thinks. What matters is, what does the Word of God say? It is our final authority. Now here's some facts about Pentecost. Pentecost was a one-time, non-repeatable event. A one-time, non-repeatable event. Why do I say that? Because the Spirit came into the world, into the believers, at one distinct time. Just like Jesus came into the world one time. There's only one manger. 
There's only one Mount Sinai. There's only one cross. There's only one resurrection. There's only one ascension. There's only one Pentecost. Now, if you look at Pentecost, you need to understand that that Pentecost is a fulfillment of what happened on Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God came down and gave His law and established a people from a family. At Pentecost, God came down in grace and chose a people to be a church. People from all backgrounds and all types and all races and all all creeds and everything. God put all of that together. Pentecost is the promise that God was going to do something more. I'm sorry, Sinai is the promise that God's going to do something more. Pentecost is the fulfillment that God has actually done it. It is a never again to be repeated event. This combination of wind and fire and tongues never occurs again in Scripture. Roy Lauren in his commentary said the gift has already been given and the promise has already been fulfilled and what has been accomplished cannot be repeated. The Holy Spirit is now the possession of every child of God through regeneration. If you want to write down by Acts chapter 2, Leviticus chapter 23 is the background for the Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits, which was Pentecost. Pentecost was the 50th day, the first Sunday after Passover. And so in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the implication is, and all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Prior to this, God had given the law and the old covenant. In Acts, God gives a spirit of grace and the new covenant. And Pentecost is the first fruit of harvest of a church that God would be building. Just like Leviticus 23 is about the Feast of Weeks and the Days of First Fruits, Pentecost is the first fruit of the church. It's the first evidence of God doing something to to build His church. And the Pentecostal experience is a harvest experience. It's a harvest experience. Now, in Leviticus 23, you don't have to turn there, but I just found an interesting verse, and so I'm going to throw this at you and and move on pretty quickly. On this same day, Leviticus 23, 21, on this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. In other words, when Pentecost happened, nobody was excused. When the, when the feast happened, nobody was excused. Everybody was expected to lay down what they were doing, to stop their work, and to go and to celebrate and to worship God. Now, here's how that would work today. Peter would call in and say, I can't come today, I've planned a fishing trip. Mary would call in and say, I can't come today, some of the family's coming over and I have to cook. James would call in and say, somebody hurt my feelings last week, I'm not coming back. Thomas would call in and say, I can't come today, I doubt if God's going to do anything anyway. 
Bartholomew would say he couldn't serve an extended session because he has out-of-town company and they don't like to come to church. Andrew couldn't work security today because it would be too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry. Matthew couldn't come because he's working on his income taxes. And Martha couldn't be here because she doesn't have time to listen to preaching because it's not a subject she's interested in. When God calls us to worship, He calls us to come and to listen and to worship and to embrace what God has to say to us. And He doesn't exempt us. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So let's look at the historic and symbolic significance of Pentecost. Number one, they were all in one accord. They were all in one accord. Now that doesn't mean they were driving a Honda. It means they were all together in one place. Chapter 1 and verse 14, they were all of one mind. In John 17, 20, Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why was it important for them to be all in one place and to be all of one mind? Unity in a church, not uniformity, unity in a church is a sign to unbelievers. The world fights and fusses, the church is supposed to have unity. And when the church has unity, it is a sign to a lost world that that church has something that that world needs. It's a sign to unbelievers. At Pentecost, the Father answered the prayer of the Son that we might be one. This is not something we work up. This is not something that we handcuff people together and insist that they all agree. This is something that is prayed down. God does it. It is not so much a consensus of opinion as it is a commitment to truth. They were all in one accord. Secondly, when the time was right, the Spirit moved in. When the time was right, now they didn't know what time that was going to be. All they knew, they were supposed to wait. But when the time was right, the Spirit moved in, and the symbols in the text were the signs of what would come. And so let's look at them. First of all, there is wind in verse 2. A noise like a violent rushing wind. I like what one commentator said. He said, the Holy Spirit rolled up his sleeves and said, let's go to work. That's, I like that. God went to work. Now, it didn't... They, did, they, they weren't looking for a mighty rushing wind, but they heard a noise like a mighty rushing wind. Now, why is that important? You can't organize wind. You can't orchestrate wind. The Scripture says the Spirit and the wind blows where it wants to blow. And this word noise is the word we get our word echo. There was something echoing. And that's important to know that word because it echoed throughout Jerusalem and the noise is what attracted the people to come to find out what was going on. And there are four times at least when wind and the Spirit are tied together. The first is in creation. 
God breathed into man the spirit of life. And so the first time we see wind and spirit tied together is at creation. The second is at regeneration. John chapter 3 and verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Jesus speaking and then Pentecost happening, it tells us that in the birth of the church and in new birth, it is a blowing of the Spirit of God onto somebody's life and those who are dead in trespasses and sin are suddenly awakened to a new life in Christ. Thirdly, it is referred to in the Word, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. God blew on those who wrote the words and they wrote them down. Fourthly, at Pentecost, God breathed and the church became a living organism. Luke 3.16 says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let me give you three characteristics of the wind and the Spirit. Number one, it's sovereign. You can't control it. You can't control it. The Holy Spirit is not going to go to your beck and call. Number two, it's powerful. You can't stop it. It's powerful. You can't stop it. Number three, it's invisible. You don't always see what He's doing. And we make a mistake when we're always expecting God to work like a mighty rushing wind because sometimes He's like a still small voice. Or when we're expecting God to roll in like a tidal wave and sometimes He comes in like the tide. Then there were tongues as of fire. Now what this tells us is that the Holy Spirit was manifested by sound, wind, and by sight, tongues that dispersed on all who were gathered. The thing that you need to understand about fire is fire is always a symbol of the purifying work of God. God was purifying. He was burning away the dross. He was sanctifying. He was purifying His body, preparing them for what was going to happen. The wind symbolized life and power. The fire symbolized cleansing and purifying. And by that you could put Isaiah 6 where Isaiah's lips were touched with a coal of fire to purify his lips. God had to purify those disciples to prepare them for what was ahead. Other languages were symbolized by the universality of them hearing. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power, that's wind. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall be my witnesses, that's fire. Something that cannot be contained. Now after verse 6, Luke never says again anything about wind and fire. It wasn't repeatable, it was a one-time act. But he does mention other languages. Now, why did this happen? Because there was an ingathering in Jerusalem of a multilingual, multi-dialect, international group of Jews who had come for the celebration of Pentecost, of Passover, and maybe stayed through Pentecost. And there were visitors from around the world in multiple dialects who had gathered in that place, and there was the filling of the Spirit of God. And then we see a reference to speaking in other languages. 
Now here's where it gets unfortunate, and I want you to stay with me and don't walk with through your preconceived ideas on either side of this issue. It is unfortunate that we have often seen people build theology on English words rather than Greek words. And the King James translators did us no favor in translating that word as tongues because the word is glossa for languages. It is a very clear and distinct word. And it is a word for languages. It would be better translated, they spoke in unknown languages. And it clearly refers to a language that was given to them to evangelize those who would have otherwise not understood a word that Simon Peter and the others were saying. It was an evangelism gift. Now, here's a, a principle to understand about interpreting the Bible and especially the Greek. Greek words have meanings, but they also have usages. They have meanings, but they also have usages. So, for instance, in the Bible, you can read a verse and it will say something about the tongue, and it's the word that James uses, for instance, about the tongue that is set on fire. He's talking about this thing right here. That's what he's talking about. Your physical tongue that's in your mouth. Sometimes the usage of that word is translated in English, tongues, but it's talking about languages, just like other words. For instance, the word world. The word world can be used to refer to the cosmos, the world, the earth. Sometimes in the Bible it's used to refer to people, and sometimes in the Bible, it's used to refer to the world system. So in English, it's translated as one word. But the usage of it is at least three completely different things. When God says, love not the world, He's not talking about the earth. He's talking about the world system. When God so loved the world, He's not saying God loved the trees and the water. He created all that. I'm sure He did. But when He says God so loved the world, He's talking about people, the people of the world. And so it's important that we understand that there are meanings to words, but there's also usages of words. Now, here's an important, and I, I know I'm wading deep, and I'm asking you to engage your minds tonight. Here's an important hermeneutical principle, and where you build your hermeneutics is where you end up theologically. An important hermeneutical principle is if your hermeneutical interpretation is built on sola scripture, scripture is the final authority, then scripture is the final authority. If in your hermeneutics and in your theology, Scripture is not the final authority. Then if some old boy was sitting in his truck drinking a beer in Camilla today, and he said, God spoke to me, then his revelation is just as valid 
as what Paul said. Now that is very important because there's a whole element in the Christian community that says God is still speaking and He's still revealing Himself. And the last time I read the last chapter of the book, it said if you add to or take away, you're in trouble. And we have a whole movement of people adding to, and they're saying, well, we have a word of knowledge, and we have a word of faith, and we have this, and we have that. Listen, their hermeneutic is God's spoken, but He may tell me something in addition to what He's already revealed. The Scripture is very clear about itself. The Scripture says of itself that all that is in Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, you don't have to go outside of Jesus and you don't have to go outside the Word of God to find out what truth is. All that God is going to say to man, He has said. Some people came to Jesus one day and said, oh, you know, he tells a story of this, this rich man in hell. He says, oh, if you just send somebody to tell them something new. So, well, they've already had Moses and the prophets. He said, oh, but if one would come back from the dead, they'd really believe that. And Jesus said they wouldn't even believe if one came back from the dead. What was Jesus trying to do? Well, he was illustrating a point, one. But one of the things he was doing with that is he was trying to help us to understand that some people are not going to believe no matter what, and no new revelation is valid. The revelation already given is what is valid. I'm real concerned about people who say, God told me to tell you. Because the last time I checked the Bible, which is my sole source of authority, I have direct access to the throne of grace. I have direct access to my high priest. And I don't have to go through any mediator of any kind in any place at any time for God to speak to me. I just have to go to His Word. Now that's crucial and it's important because if you don't believe that, then you'll buy something that somebody says as truth and you'll put it on the same level as Scripture. And that, my friends, borders on idolatry because we begin to worship our words as revelations from God. Now, what had they heard? They heard a noise like wind. What had they seen? They saw something that resembled fire. What did they experience? Languages previously unknown to the speaker. But the clear point of it all was that they were going to preach Jesus Christ as Lord and these Jews were going to come and they were going to hear. If you look at Exodus and if you look at Pentecost, you will see a parallel path. God came down in fire and with law in Exodus. God came down in fire and with grace at Pentecost. God came down with an old covenant in Exodus. God came down with His new covenant at Pentecost. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians I think chapter 12. Can't read my own notes. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 22. Jews, now this is important because you interpret Acts by the letters of Paul and by what he says about these events. Jews demand miraculous signs 
and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Isaiah said in chapter 28 and verse 11, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 says, In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then, in Acts, and what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is he's going back and interpreting the events in the book of Acts. And Paul says... I'm picking up on what Isaiah said and on what happened in the book of Acts and what this was was a sign to unbelievers, a witness to the lost. And in 1 Corinthians 14, what Paul is doing is he is saying that Pentecost is validated in Scripture by the sign that was given at Pentecost. And now he interprets it. So we have... Tongues and lips of foreigners preaching the gospel. There are only four passages in the New Testament that deal with this matter of tongues. And again, you have to interpret them in light of the didactic and not the descriptive. The church that gave Paul the greatest grief and the most headaches was Corinth. Now why? Because Corinth was so caught up with themselves and so caught up with their experiences that they applauded immorality. They abused the grace of God. And if you want to get a picture of Corinth, it is this. They took God's truth and turned it upside down to fit what they wanted it to say. And they made the least the most important, and the most important, the least important. I'll give you a statement. This is not really a statement, but I just... Uh, John Bassanio used to say that 1 Corinthians was a spiritual enema for a sick church. Church needed to be cleaned out a little bit. And they were sick spiritually because they had reversed everything that God had set in order and they were a church of disorder and chaos. They were playing favorites. They were ignoring sin. They were abusing the gifts, which tells you if nothing else when you read 1 Corinthians, you can have a spiritual gift and be as carnal as you can be. doesn't have anything to do with a sign of spirituality. Now most of the early church fathers believed that Pentecost was God's reversal of the curse of God at Babel. That at Babel, God confused the languages and the nations were scattered. And that at Pentecost, the language barrier was broken down as a prelude, as a prelude to what Jesus would one day do when He would bring together every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Babel was about pride and exalting man Pentecost was about humility and exalting God. And so let's do some contemporary application. First of all, the purpose of the Spirit's coming. The purpose of the Spirit's coming, and I won't dwell on this long, but the purpose of the Spirit's coming is that we might have power for living and to bear witness. The Spirit came so that we might speak the truth 
in love. Exalting of any gift, any gift, any gift is a sign of a self-centered Christian who thinks it's all about them and what they have. And I mean any gift, teaching, mercy, any gift. And it's a sign of self-centeredness in America that we get puffed up about what we have. And we don't talk enough about what God does. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 2, there's a beginning of the church and the whosoever will of the gospel transcends race and languages and opinions and cultures and generations. Now, every one of us have met someone along life's way that thought they had a corner on the spiritual market. You have, I have. I've gotten letters from people that told me what I needed so I could be spirit-filled. I've had people stop me and tell me, oh, if you just watch brother so-and-so, you could have the anointing of God on your life. Listen, folks, I got everything I needed when I got saved. The only thing I'm supposed to do is give God more of me because I can't get any more of Him. Jesus didn't come in increments. He didn't come in parts. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in degrees. He comes full load first time. And the only issue for any of us is that He doesn't have enough of us because we have available all of Him. But, you know, it, it has been interesting to me as I've studied this and walked through it. I, I've never heard anybody say, Oh, brother, if you just had the gift of mercy, you could walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Nobody's ever said, Man, I want to tell you what set me free and gave me the Spirit-filled life, the gift of giving. Oh, if you just had the gift of administration. It always seems to be around other stuff. I don't see anywhere in my Bible where we are to exalt what we have. I see everywhere in my Bible that we are to exalt Jesus. Don Miller used to say, Gary told me that uh, he would remember standing with his dad when he was a 9, 10, 11-year-old boy. And Don Miller used to say somebody would come up to him and, when he was doing these prayer conferences. And Don Miller is the greatest prayer warrior I've ever met. Uh, if I had one phone call to make to ask somebody to pray for me, I'd call Don Miller uh, to pray for me because anybody that prays as much as he does and knows how to get a hold of God, I, 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 want, I want his inside track. But he said people would come up to him and say, Oh, Brother Miller... Oh, I, I've just had this wonderful experience. I've just had this ecstatic experience. I've just had this wonderful thing that's just burst out of me. And, and Don Miller, as only Don Miller could say, say, that's good. Now let's move on to deeper things. Isn't it amazing that we have made what even Paul said is the least, the most? as if somehow having the least makes us the most like Jesus. 
what God did here, the purpose of the Spirit's coming was very clear. It was to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Secondly, the purpose of the Spirit baptism, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we were baptized, all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary says this baptism of the Spirit, it was never repeated. It was later extended to the believers in Samaria in Acts 8, to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, and to the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19. The filling of the Spirit was often repeated, but not the baptism of the Spirit. As I've tried to study church history, the idea of two events in your life and a second baptism is a phenomenon that began in about the mid-1800s. There's no reference to it all the way through the Reformation. There's no reference to it through the Great Awakenings. There's no reference to it. It is that God may do a new filling work in you, but there's one baptism. You get the Spirit one time. The baptism of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is God coming to occupy His new vessel the body which is the church. We are not exhorted to be baptized. We are commanded to be filled. And so what's the problem in today's church? I think the problem is primarily that we're bogged down somewhere between Calvary and Pentecost. We've come to the cross for pardon, but we've not come to the Spirit for power. We've come to the cross for pardon, but we've not come to the Spirit for power. And so we face two extremes, wildfire and no fire, debating gifts and ignoring the fruit. So we must not take Scripture out of context. In Acts, the disciples were united. In Corinth, they were divided. In Acts, the Spirit was given as a witness. In Corinth, they used the gifts, and I like this phrase from Warren Wiersbe, as toys instead of tools. And much of what I see today at the extremes of the Christian faith are people playing with the Spirit like He's a toy to be used rather than a tool to empower us for life. By the way, the only gift that Paul ever rebuked of all the gifts listed in Corinth, in Corinthians and in Romans, the only gift he ever rebuked was tongues. Why? Because it's hard to say, now wait a minute. So Paul, for us, said, now wait a minute. Let's interpret this in light of what the Old Testament said God would do, and in light of what happened at Pentecost. The fruit of the Spirit is the benchmark of the filling of the Spirit. So let me give you about seven bottom line things, and then we're through. This has been a long message, and trust me, it has been one that I have wrestled with because I, I want to speak truth. That's all I want to do. Number one, the work of the Spirit is a unifying work, not a divisive work. 
The work of the Spirit is a unifying work, not a divisive work. Number two, the Spirit came to convict of sin, not confuse the saints. The Spirit came to convict of sin, not confuse the saints. Number three, the Spirit was given not for argument, but for proclamation. The Spirit was given not for argument, but for proclamation. Number four, the Spirit always exalts Jesus, not Himself. Jesus came to glorify the Father and the Spirit came to glorify the Son. In fact, the Holy Spirit doesn't even really want to be talked about because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And He came to glorify the Son and the Son came to glorify the Father. And so the Spirit must not be exalted. Number five, the Holy Spirit equips us to do all we need to do. Everything Jesus left us to do, the Spirit of God has equipped us to do it. Number six, I'll repeat the statement by Warren. The Spirit is not a toy, but a tool. He will guide you into all truth. And number seven, if we do anything in the name of God that causes disorder, division, or schisms, it's not of God. Because ladies and gentlemen, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit don't argue with each other. They are in total agreement with each other. And they're agreed on what they have told us in the Word. Corinth promoted preachers. Oh, you got to go hear brother so-and-so. Corinth excused sin. Corinth refused to grow up. Acts was in one accord. Acts brought together Jews and Gentiles. Acts built bridges. and Acts, they preached Jesus. Which church would you want to be a part of? The church at Corinth? Or the church of Acts? There's nothing about the truth that scares me. But there's everything about the misuse of the truth that concerns me. And I want us to be a church that is committed to truth. I am more committed to truth than I am committed to being a Baptist. I am a Baptist. I'm not ashamed of it. But I'm more committed to truth, and if Baptists ever depart from what Jude says is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, I'd quit being a Baptist. But my responsibility as shepherd is to lead this flock as best I understand it in what the truth says, not my opinions, not my thoughts not my preferences, but in what I believe the Word of God teaches us very clearly. 
I'm not mad at people who disagree with me. I'm not upset at people that may have various and different views. But I will say this. Whatever your view, make sure you take it to the Word of God. Because it is easy for us to be confused or easy for us to take something on the surface and hop, skip, and jump through it and the devil would want to deceive us and the devil would want to confuse us and the devil would want to undermine us and the devil would want us on secondary things instead of primary things. The key to the Reformation on which every evangelical church is built was sola scripture. The Word of God has final authority. It's not built on men or the opinions of men. It's not built on edicts from a pope that changed from pope to pope. It's built on a final and complete revelation in God's holy, inerrant, infallible word that is to be interpreted accurately. That's why we are to rightly divide the word of truth. So let's pray together. In just a moment, we'll have some folks to present, but while we're waiting for them, and Andy, I'll ask you to help me with that. You know, folks, I, I, I've never been interested in stirring controversy. I've never